Number, please. Hello? WOTW Radio in Cayuga, New Mexico, and this is the news for the hour. Now, what would you like to tell us about yourself? I don't know. Well, aren't you like some big science girl? Tell me about science. Edward, it's Faye. I'm a sound came through the board and interrupted your radio show. What a sound. Here at WOTW, we got a sound we'd like to play that seems to be bouncing around the valley tonight. Yes, I have a story that might be helpful. I can tell you what's going on. The sound we heard out in the desert, it was coming from thousands of feet higher than anything could fly. They've come here before. They've liked this place. They always have. Hello and welcome to the Movie Robcast. I'm your host, Rob Wallace, and as always, it's an absolute delight to be joined by my co-host, Mr. Rob Daniel. And as always, it's an absolute delight to be here. And for the second occasion, it's also very, very lovely to be joined by Tess. Hi. Uh, uh, Tess, do you want to... Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> I was just going to say, um, it's really great to be back and I loved doing the last one, so I'm very excited. Uh, sorry, I, I should probably give uh, give you a full end. Uh, Tessa Scott, um, do you want to, for people who may have missed the last episode, though I can't imagine anyone would have, do you want to tell us a bit about yourself? Uh, yeah, I know Rob Daniel. We used to work together at Sky and we became very good friends uh, through a great passion for film. I studied uh, film and television at university. Yeah, so it's an absolute pleasure to be able to talk to you guys for an hour uh, about a film. Well, again, thank you for coming on board. Um, obviously, uh, didn't that to, that to see we didn't drive you away with the uh, with the previous episode that you didn't just think we were so intolerable you you couldn't stand to have another conversation with us. No, I'm I'm pleased it's not the other way around that you didn't uh, find me too annoying as a guest. When I listened back to myself, obviously you, you don't sound nearly as um, lovely as you hope you do. <laughs> uh, but yeah, oh, cool trust me, it, it's, it's something it's it's something you get used to. You, you sort of, the first the first couple of times you hear your voice back, you're like, do I sound like that? And then after a while, you kind of just get immune to it. Yeah, I think it's also a, a good trick not to think too hard about what you want to say and just talk normally like you would in a conversation. I think knowing you being recorded can sometimes give you a bit of stage fright. Yeah, so I, I say maybe uh, I might occasionally err too much in the other direction and occasionally forget that there are other people who may want to listen to this at some point. <laughs> on a, on no, it's fine, Rob. I always um, cut those bits out. <laughs> 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 um, on today's podcast, we're going to be talking about The Vast of Night, a new a, a sci-fi film that's just arrived on Amazon Prime. Um, Rob, would you do the honours of reading the synopsis? I will do. But before I do that, could I just say that this is the second time that we've said that we would talk about a movie with Tess and then we change it. And I was thinking, oh, there's actually quite a nice link between the movie we were supposed to talk about and the film that we end up talking about. So the first time was Blue Velvet which is obviously a film about um, you know, destructive relationships with an air of sadomasochism to it. And we ended up talking about Whiplash. And Sorry, you talking about, one... talk about Blue Velvet or The Pod? 
<laughs> Blue Velvet, but we can get onto the pod. Then we were going to talk about Moonlight, but instead we have decided to go for The Vast of Night for this episode. So Moonlight and The Vast of Night. So there's always some thematic yeah. link in terms okay. of how we change our minds. <laughs> and maybe the colour palette of with like purples and blues. Oh, that's yeah. a very good point. That's good. See, that's the reason you're on this, Tess. <laughs> to take the ramblings and actually put some intelligence around it. So just keep doing that. <laughs> I'll try my best. <laughs> cool. Okay, then. So yes, uh, after you, Rob. Oh, no, you, you first. Uh, if, you would, if you'd like to go ahead with the synopsis. Yeah. So The Vast of Night, this is from IMDb. In the twilight of the 1950s, on one fateful night in New Mexico, young switchboard operator Faye and charismatic radio DJ Everett discover a strange audio frequency that could change their small town and the future forever. Mm. I think that's a pretty fair... Yeah. Yeah, it's good, actually. That's one of the better IMDb ones. And so, yes, it's quite uh, a sort of simple story, off. so... <laughs> yeah, it, it is, and one and that's that's one of the things, both in concepts and I think, and in framing, uh, very much deliberately. The Vast of Night is essentially a Twilight Zone episode, one of the original, sort of, you know, the 1950s. It even opens with a sort of tracking-in shot, a tracking on a uh, on an old 1950s sort of, I think, Bakelite-style set. And the as a framing device, it, it uses... Uh, Paradox Theatre, which is like a sort of Twilight Zone style anthology series of which this is apparently a, a feature length episode. And I thought that the intro to Paradox Theatre was particularly good in being a faux Rod Serling intro to a Twilight Zone episode. It just seemed to take that kind of patter and just run it through like a synonym generator to choose slightly different words to <laughs> introduce what the show was about. Yeah, it's quite neat. So this is immediately, I think, well. where I'm... S- Sorry, I think there's a bit of a lag. Uh, immediately where I feel like I was at a slight uh, disadvantage watching this film is because I haven't watched The Twilight Zone or Close Encounters of the Third Kind or probably loads of similar sci-fi or alien films that I should have seen. So all the references that you're talking about now, I don't know. I enjoyed it anyway, but I did feel like there's probably loads that I was missing. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I think, I think it's... After you, Rob. I think it is largely a tonal thing, though um, there are some sort of little in-jokes, like the fact the town in it is called Cayuga, which is the name of the production company that produced the the original Twilight Zone series. Right. I actually Googled it afterwards to see if it was a real town um, and then saw a lot about how they found the locations and kind of created it um, and saw the kind of before and after, which was really cool, especially on such a small budget. I read a lot about it being such a small budget as well. So how much was the budget? Sorry. I don't know. Just people kept on, <laughs> kept on uh, commenting that they had done a lot and managed to achieve a lot on a being an indie small budget film. But yeah, I don't know what the budget was. Because I think it was all self-funded by the director, Andrew Patterson. Wow, okay. This is very much sort of a, um, a, a passion project for him. He's a professional filmmaker, but was mainly working on commercials, I think, which obviously, you know, has a strong history of uh, commercial directors going on to make influential indies, especially in that era, or sorry, sorry, in sort of of this style. And I have watched a lot of the original. I think I've watched all of the original Twilight Zone. Sorry, Rob, in terms of those other directors you were talking about, so which ones are you thinking there? Uh, I was thinking most particularly to the pod, it's uh, uh, George Romero. Right. In terms of uh, going from a background on the commercial side of things, working together a uh, budget and then going out there and just shooting it in small town America. 
Yeah, not even I picked up on that. And um, <laughs> but that is a very good point. There is a real parallel here between what the director Andrew Patterson has done and what George Romero did with Night of the Living Dead. Yeah, it's a good point. I'm not sure, though, that you need to know a lot about The Twilight Zone to enjoy this film. I think it's one of those where you just need to know that there is a thing called alien abduction and conspiracy theories, and that the rest of it is, it's there if you like it. Like, did you pick up on the name of the radio station? No, I, I just know it was it. something with a W. So it's W-O-T-W. So W-O-T-W is War of the Worlds. Oh, of course, because there is, yeah, there's definitely that to it as well. The kind of Orson Welles style. You could imagine this being done as a radio play. Well, yeah, that's the thing is, because Orson Welles, of course, famously shocked America when he did an adaptation of War of the Worlds, I think, in the 1930s. And to show just how America was so gullible at the time, lots of people believed it and thought that it was a real thing they were listening to and thought that the Martians were invading and it caused like a national scandal. And it's so... Luckily, the- quaint when you go back and listen to it because it has sound effects in it and stuff like that and it also has ad breaks so it's like so you can just see how people just weren't aware of how a massive crisis like this would be broadcast over the radio at that time so I think that that's like yeah that's a very very conscious reference to the fact that Orson Welles had done an adaptation of War of the Worlds as a radio broadcast I think it's a good point as well that it felt sometimes like it could have just been a, a story on the radio because obviously it was really dialogue heavy Mm. And at some points when this, obviously sometimes the screen fades to black for long periods of time, I even closed, had to close my eyes at those points just to focus on the dialogue and make sure I wasn't missing stuff because the pace was quite slow and there was a lot of talking. And at times I thought I, I could have even just closed my eyes for almost the whole film and been able to follow what was going on. Maybe that was intentional because it was so much about the radio. They kind of wanted to keep that going and have it sound like a radio story. Hmm. That's a really good point, actually. That would be a really good experiment to watch it or just to listen to it and to see how much of it you could follow just through the audio. Hmm. I found it difficult in the beginning. I started watching it one evening and I was quite tired. I think it was after work and um, I was watching it on my TV and the long shots, the grainy, foggy feel and the rapid fire talking that was happening in the beginning, I really kind of struggled to get into it. Um, I actually had to put on the subtitles because we just weren't understanding what they were saying and I, I just found it really tough. So I kind of just left it and then came back but watched it on my laptop with my headphones in. So I was like a bit closer to the screen and I felt that made it a lot easier to follow what was going on. I don't know if you guys had any like similar feelings of, of kind of struggling to access it. In the beginning in particular, I thought the beginning scene could have lost a lot of people because the dialogue was so quick. I mean, one of the, the highlights of this film is I love a Southern accent, as Rob knows. So that was <laughs> like divine I could have listened to them speaking all day I've got so many quotes that I wrote down that I love um one where she says devil dealing devil dog I just love that sorry Tess it's you. actually it's a rule of the podcast test that you need to do the accents when you do yeah. that <laughs> devil dealing devil dog <laughs> I completely agree with what you say about the opening of this film. I, well, first of all, it's really interesting that you mentioned the kind of grainy, foggy image, because I watched this on my 
lovely UHD telly. So regular listeners will know that I love my UHD telly more than I love life itself, I think. Um, and Or irregular it, listeners. Just anybody who lives in the, in the general vicinity of Rob's house. I mean, I think... <laughs> so true. Um, so I watched it last night. You're so going to get burgled. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's not the most amazing telly ever. You can get it from PC World, but anyway, but it's really good though. Or from uh, Rob's living room. Yes, for a lot cheaper. Um, but I watched it last night on Amazon Prime and I watched the UHD version and thought, is my streaming playing up? Because this has a bit of a washed out look to it. And then I kind of realised, no, this is intentional. This is a stylistic choice. I'm not sure if it was there to kind of uh, replicate an old TV signal, but I know what you mean about the beginning. It was... I think because it's largely done in wide shots. So these long takes on wide shots. So you don't really get a good look at the characters. You certainly can't see their mouths a lot of the time because they're talking into a microphone and it's at night because they're all at this basketball game or something, aren't they, at the school hall. So the whole town's there and that's where you kind of start off. But you follow Everett and Faye and there's so much talking and you're not introduced to the characters and you're kind of following them around. And I did... Yes, I actually wrote down in my notes that I'm having trouble understanding the Everett character because he's mumbling with a cigarette in his mouth. And it's a really good drawl that he has, but it was like, I've heard this is great, so therefore I trust that I'm in good hands. But I have to admit, I'm not into this film right now. And it was 20 minutes uh, before I... the film kind of settles down. And then, yes, and then I really got into it. Sorry, I've gone. I, I think I, I kind of managed to sort of tune into the patter fairly fairly early on. I also think that largely, I, I don't think it matters too much. To start with, it's very much a mood piece. And I think you immediately get a sense of who these characters are, just just situationally and, you know, and, and costuming. And but and I, I love the fact that it basically goes from being, uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to think of a, comp- of a comparable film, just a, a film about basically a couple of well, they're not the loot. They're they're, the, they're almost the kind of the cool kids. I mean, he's he's like a radio DJ in you know a pair of specs, but everybody really seems to respect Everett. You know, he's clearly regarded as somebody you know with a bit of something to him. But I really love how it kind of just segues into being this sci-fi film with a, an alien presence that could be frustrating insofar as it's quite it's not that well defined, but. I just found the sort of dynamic between uh, Jake Horowitz as Everett and Sierra McCormack as Faye Crocker really winning straight from the off. And the fact that he's clearly this this slightly more experienced or more confident guy who's kind of leading her through the parking lot with like, is that, I wasn't quite sure, but was that done as a single take? It felt like a single take. I wondered that as well. There were so many points where I thought, oh, damn it, I, I missed if that was all one shot or not. Because it, it, yeah, I felt like it could have been. I think there's a lot in there that, was done in very long takes. Um, there's also obviously a lot of invisible edit points in there as well. But that opening in the school hall when they're talking and he wants the trombone player to drop down his horn so that he can catch it. I was thinking, I'm very aware of the amount of stage direction they're having to follow here. And if it was to drop that, they'd have to do it all over again. And because I'm not entirely sure of the relationships here, I'm very aware that I'm watching a movie and it did keep me at a bit of a distance. And in terms of who they are, I'm not entirely sure that's landed very clearly in the opening 20 minutes, particularly as you think she's, well, she is a schoolgirl. As I think they say she's about 16, but she seems to have a job as a switchboard operator at night. And 
well, switchboard operator isn't a job that exists anymore, really. So it's like, and I thought it was actually quite good. They didn't explain what she was doing for younger audience members. But I thought there was a certain audacity in the fact that they didn't really introduce the characters at the beginning. And actually, you had to fight to keep up with what was going on. And only really began to calm down a little bit when she starts talking about the technology of the future and basically describes what's a smartphone. I think you're right. That's the first point that I was actually able to latch on. And so when I'd gotten through the beginning, that was the point and after that, that it, that it got me in. And I think it's quite risky because it possibly could have lost a lot of people early on. And um, there was, I, I just, at one point in the beginning, I just was so tired and I thought to myself, just stop talking. Like this film is asking too much of me. They're talking too fast. I can't really see what's going on. I can't see the characters' faces. It's all in a long shot. It, yeah, I found it really, really tiring. I think that based on the framing of the film, I think sort of it sets out its still very, very quickly, both in terms of the sort of the rat-a-tat, contextless, fast-moving pace, and in terms of the opening Paradox Theatre, Twilight Zone-style riff. As you say, Rob, I really like the audacity of this film, how this is clearly being made by somebody who has a real love of, of, of you know, this era of filmmaking. I, I, and I, I looked it up quickly. It cost $700,000, apparently, to film. Well, that was um, money well spent. And, and I think one of the good things about the streaming environment is, as long as a film is, is, is well-made, it, it, it will find an audience. There are, there are, I think there are more venues to find an audience at the moment than there have ever been before. And the fact that it, it, doesn't, it doesn't compromise in, in terms of what the, what the writer is and directors never wants, it just does dive straight into this, to start with almost a character study, there's not much story to it. Well, just on that, I was going to say, it's, it's actually interesting. I think I was wrong early when I said you don't need to really know a lot about the Twilight Zone here, because I think that that opening does provide a bit of a comfort or like a cushion that you kind of know what it's going to be. And if you're not familiar with the Twilight Zone, then you're not going to have that. You're just going to have a lot of information thrown at you from characters that you don't really know in the opening 20 minutes. Whereas if you do know the Twilight Zone, you think, okay, right, I know what this is. It's a small town. Everyone's going about their nights. There seems to be some some big event that's happening. It's set at night. It's in the 50s. I would imagine the alien invasion or some kind of commie paranoia or something like that is going to come into this. So they reference the um, the commie paranoia. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right, they do. Because uh, he, he says to her, he gives her, when she's asking for something to say into the recorder, he does the, you know, have you, uh, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? Yes, which was a nice joke, yeah. The famous Chewak, yeah. I think the references at the beginning were quite strong with the TV, when the TV came up referencing like a Twilight Zone episode is kind of the first thing you see. And then quite soon after the intro, when she gets back to her house, the conversation between her and her mother kind of then goes into like a TV screen effect. And mm. and then I think it was at that scene when myself and my boyfriend said, oh, no, we can't do this right now. We have to turn this off and I'm going to try watch this again at another time. Because it felt like, okay, this is possibly a film for sci-fi fans and kind of like an arty film with all these kinds of effects that... I feel quite alienated from at the moment. But then as I carried on watching, when I came back to the film, then it kind of got me in when we could see Faye in a close-up as she was working the switchboard. She is so fantastic. I just loved her in this film. I thought she was such a great character. And the actress who played her made her so compelling and sincere and earnest. She just had this like, yeah, this earnestness about her. 
don't know if that's the right word, that kind of, yeah, just made me fall in love with her. But what I wanted to say was uh, something that I wrote down in my notes was that it was, it felt like a totally different kind of film and it gave me quite a unique feeling. So what possibly alienated me in the beginning, I really appreciated as I continued to watch because it felt like something that was very different and unlike other films I've seen. It reminded me a little bit of in terms of how it did, it very much did its own thing, not in terms of style or execution. It reminded me a little bit of The Endless, that the, uh, the Justin Benson, Aaron Moorhead film from a couple of years ago. So I haven't seen that one. Yeah, just in terms of its high concept and low budget and just kind of throws you in the deep end and lets you figure it out. Right. Just go back to what Tess was saying about the actress who plays Faye, Sierra McCormick. Yeah, she was great. And I actually found her, to be honest, the anchor for the 20 Minutes because I could hear what she was saying. And she did have this really winning screen presence. And I think earnest is the right word. She's enthusiastic and she's earnest. And she kind of repeatedly will bring up the Everett character on White Lies that is telling or something like that. And it's um, unusual to see such a well-written kind of Nancy Drew straight lace character in a film now. And I think it only really works in a 50s setting i think she would seem a bit yeah, naive now um but it works yeah, absolutely beautifully there and i also have to say i think that um that now is a good point to say i love this film i thought this film as soon as it laid the groundwork and then we got into the film and what it was doing i just thought this was brilliant and contender for a top 10 of the year list i think but what did everyone else think of it I was mixed. I think I didn't enjoy the beginning. Then I got really into it in the middle. There were some parts that made me gasp. And at at some point I got goosebumps. And as I say, the Faye Faye character just gave me life. I mean, when she just suddenly had a thought and then started running and was just running like her life depended on it. I loved those scenes. And um, where they just, even with the two of them running through the forest at the end, where you, you just hear the sound of them running with that subtle music in the background. It was just amazing and so epic. And also the, those tracking shots. I think the first really long tracking shot with the ominous music in the background where you don't know where it's going and if it's going to alight on like an alien or um, what's at the end of it. I remember yeah, writing epic in my notes because it just felt so atmospheric and moody and brilliant. They, yeah, there were definitely things that I, I also didn't like. I sometimes thought the long bits of dialogue were too long. At one point, the the elderly lady character, she said, okay, I'm going to get right to the point. And I thought, oh, thank God for that. <laughs> if there was like a, a long build up, you know, it would just be a little bit too boring in, in points. Yeah. So I, th- I think overall I'm, mixed for me, but on the whole, I, I did, did like it. I think they, um, I think the sort of long periods of dialogue are very much from the sort of the tradition of the original kind of stage play when the fact that, you know, there was still very much the tradition of theatre behind it. So you would you would give characters these long speeches and the camera and the camera tended to be quite static. I really loved the tracking shots because all of a sudden the dynamic completely changes. And there are, you know, there's that one where it's kind of rushing across that open lot and then into the school hall and then up and over the bleachers. Is one of those shots that had me wondering, like, how just how what were the practicalities of doing this? Presumably, this you know, this has been touched up in post, but this had to be done on some level for real because you don't have unlimited money to throw at it. Well, apparently, that um, shot was um, was done largely for real. I mean, it actually crosses a huge amount of distance to the point where I was thinking, is this a CGI recreation of a town? Apparently, not, and it was mounted on some kind of go kart because that kind of reminded me of Sam Raimi and the Evil Dead. 
I thought it was something like an RV, but like sorry, a remote control, like a remote control car. It is a very low angle shot. That mm. uh, no, I, I totally get get what you mean uh, with the Sam Raimi kind of the force, the POV force shot. Yeah, because, I mean, in terms of the narrative justification of that shot, it's like, well, it kind of lays out the town in terms of where they're going to go as they investigate what this sound is about. But it doesn't need to be this shot. You are just having fun taking people on a phantom ride through this town. But this is amazing how much of this is real. And yes, and apparently most of it was. And then I think you can see a couple of edit points when it gets into the school hall. But yeah, that was like, wow, look at that. Then you have these periods where the film just stops and it just becomes monologues or it will be a conversation. And then, as you were saying, Tess, you then get these points where it goes back to being an image on a screen, and it seems to almost be testing itself in how much it can foreground the fact that this is a film you're watching and still keep the emotional engagement. And I was really impressed at how well it did that. I, at some points, wondered if it felt too effecty, though. Um, I think the story was very simple, and I have to say the ending did let kind of leave me feeling a bit empty and and thinking okay now what and then I I wanted a bit more and I felt like it was all set up and then not a lot of payoff I felt like if you stripped away some of those effects like the tv screen and the you know long periods of fading to black or the the kind of you know mood board feel of it I, I wondered if it would hold up Yeah, it's interesting. I think that the style and the substance are kind of intertwined in terms of what he's doing with the traditions of storytelling and with differences between radio and film. So I think that's all in there. And if you take it out, you'd be taken away, I think, um, some of what he's trying to achieve. On the point of the ending, I think we'll have to have a quick spoiler section for this because I want to talk about the ending. If only so for the second consecutive podcast you guys can tell me how i've misunderstood the ending (laughs) although i'm not entirely sure i have on this one but i want to check to see because i have some theories about the ending but we can't talk about it until we get to spoilers i don't think you've misunderstood the ending that's my uh, sorry that's my initial guess sorry he says to be very patronizing uh, i admire Um, your optimism (laughs) that's a spoiler in itself I'm going to reverse that for the actual episode. Anyway. Sorry, can I just check when you say spoilers? Is that Does it mean we'll talk about the spoilery parts right at the end? Yes, indeed. We'll have a spoiler section so we won't reveal any of the twists or anything like that. Oh, good to know. One, I liked a couple of little things, like um, the fact that when she initially, when um, the fake character starts recording... Uh, and she's talking to Everett. She asks him whether or not it, there's going to cause crosstalk if they get the conversation going. And his response is, you know, you tell me. But it's great how I think that kind of foregrounds the fact there is going to be a lot of crosstalking. This is going to be quite fast paced. Puts that right at the start of their, uh, uh, just as they're going out into the parking lot for the first time. I love that scene, talking about fast talking, where it was, it was one of the scenes uh, that gave me goosebumps, where they're kind of, I think, rushing outside, and then the car pulls up with those two other characters, and they're saying, uh, there's something in the sky. And I love that line, there's something in the sky. It just felt so ominous. But then there's there's a part where they're standing in a circle, the four of them, and they just kind of cross-talking, and you, it's kind of building up this excitement and feeling of what's happening. And I love that also, in, it reminded me a bit of, of Little Women, which I watched again Mm. recently. Um, And I absolutely adore the dialogue in that film just because there is so much cross-talking and so many great little moments. It's not quite the same in this one because I think a a lot of the the dialogue in that scene you couldn't understand and you weren't supposed to. But watching the opening again the second time 
I enjoyed it much more because I just accepted that there were going to be bits that I didn't catch and miss, but there were going to be little gems of dialogue. And I wrote the most quotes from that opening scene. And I, I think if you can just accept that, you know, some bits you'll miss and some you'll you'll get with the Southern accent and, and just kind of embrace the cross-talking as I did yeah, for Little Women in Love, then you'll appreciate it more. Absolutely. I think there's... Um... I mean, I actually missed that reference to cross-talking in the film, so I'm going to have to go back and watch it again, even though I was going to do it anyway, because I think this is a great movie. But yeah, that point when they're saying there's something in the sky, which of course I think is a play on Watch the Skies, which was a slogan from the 50s, which I think was more to do with like the potential of a communist invasion, particularly when Sputnik went up. But it just seemed to capture the, the wonder and the paranoia of the 1950s in terms of there were these amazing scientific breakthroughs. The space race was really beginning and it seemed as if there was all these, you know, that there was a huge amount of potential, but there was also an element of fear and paranoia that went along with it. And I thought that the film did that really well. So what were the other things that you wrote down in terms of the quotes test? Because I've got, I've got a couple here that I really like. I just want to see if you got them as well. Oh, I loved so many of them. So the one, um, the one he says in the beginning, Everett, he says, uh, when she's doesn't know what to say, he says, you got to say something buzzing. I just love that. <laughs> Buzzy. And then obviously, as I said earlier, devil dealing, devil dog. And then when he called the guy who was boring a tombstone, so you can't <laughs> waste their time on a tombstone like that. That was brilliant. And then when she, she said something about her middle name, and then he says, I didn't know, but I definitely don't care. <laughs> <laughs> My favorite, what I think was one of my favorite parts in the movie was when uh, she's talking about going back to the library and there's that like pause and then Everett says, okay, Faye, run. Oh, and then she just gets up and starts running. That was so brilliant. And then the other one I wanted to say was um, when the elderly lady was giving her address. I love that she lived at 1616 Sycamore. <laughs> so what's that from? Uh, I don't know if it's from anything. I just thought like the dialogue was clever. And when they had moments of just making it intriguing, like the alliteration of devil dealing devil dog or 1616 Sycamore, they kind of used those opportunities to make the dialogue a bit interesting. And the only reason I asked that was because I thought, is that a reference to something? Because it just seemed like a really easy address to remember 1616 Sycamore. I think it might be from Twilight Zone. Well, that would make sense. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think which episode it's from. While you're thinking about that, there's a couple that mm. I wrote down. There. There's a point when Faye is chastising Everett and she's having a bit of a go at him. And he says, you are on a stick with me tonight. <laughs> and I thought that was... Yeah. Oh, that's so that. great. You're on a stick with me tonight. And those are some of the best parts when her and Everett kind of got a bit tense with each other. Because I think she's a bit um, shy of him in the beginning. And then I love how through this experience they go, you know, they, this journey they go on she can get a bit feisty. And I love her when she's feisty. Yeah, that she just has a very, very good moral centre and a very strong compass. And there's a couple of things that he does that are a bit more kind of hipster, maybe, or a bit more hustler. And she's a bit surprised by that. It was a film, I think, that's got one F word in it. And I didn't think it needed it. I thought, you just don't need swearing in this. This is, it, it's just so authentic for them not to be swearing. But anyway. When was that? I don't remember it. Yeah, not sure I call it's the F word. off screen and it's when it's all beginning to get, it's towards the end when things are beginning to get quite urgent and Everett runs out of the radio station and I think he says fuck at that point. 
Oh, Rob, now you've ruined it. I thought this was going to be like our only PG episode. Yes. <laughs> like, including, like, including the Mulan episode, this was going to be our only PG or like you rated yes, it's episode. It's ironic that the Mulan episode was not suitable for children. This is a 12, which would suggest that it has got an F word in it. Because um, I don't think there's anything else really in the film. There was some threat, I suppose, but yeah. I like, I did like the line. Um, cut the gas cube, which um, made me sort of, uh, which really actually just gave me a little bit of a Coen Brothers buzz, the kind of, you know, what's the rumpus? Yes, indeed, yeah, that's right. So what are the Twilight Zone things that you picked up in this, Rob? Were there any specific references or was it more of like a vibe? Well, that's the thing. Apart from the Cayuga thing, I don't think there were really many specific references. I think, obviously, the mood is kind of, I mean, I've seen, I think it's all 156 episodes (laughs) of the original Twilight Zone. I think I watched them all during my final year at university. At one point, yeah, when I was incredibly stressed working on my uh, dissertation, I sort of came to on the couch. Like, I'd been working. I like I, I was conscious and working, but I had this kind of moment of self-awareness and epiphany sat on the couch when I realised I was sat there shirtless and hadn't done anything else in about two days and had just been watching endless episodes of The Twilight Zone back-to-back that maybe I wasn't in the healthiest environment. <laughs> so you're in a stressful situation and watching something in which reality is not what it seems. But I've got I've sort of got one main thing to kind of say about the Twilight Zone, but it's probably best to keep it in in the spoiler section. Is there anything else that we want to say about this before we get to spoilers? Um, so something that I I don't know if it is I don't think it's a spoiler, but I questioned the Billy character and wanted more from that storyline. And they mentioned that. So this is one of the parts where I gasped that. Um, I mean, stop me if you if you think I'm going to say a spoiler. But that that they in, in kind of touching upon it and then not exploring it, they end up kind of marginalising the character. Yeah, exactly. I am going to put that into spoilers. Sorry. Okay, should we? Yeah, should we move this to spoilers? Should we? Yeah, just think. Is, is there anything else to say before then? One thing I did like about this actually was that it was really tactile in terms of the old technology. So the switchboard, the idea that you couldn't just phone someone, you had to phone an operator who would then put you through. And the reel-to-reel tapes they were using, there's the point when he's, um, he's going through all those tapes to see if they've got any clues as to what the sound might be. And he's threading up the reel-to-reel tape on the machine. And the speed at which he's doing it is like, you had to practice that as an actor. So Jake Horowitz, who plays Everett, it's like, you had to practice that as an actor because you're doing that way too convincingly as if you've done it a hundred times as part of your job when this is ancient technology now but actually when they were first recording i thought they were going to get a cassette tape and then thought oh no because cassette tapes hadn't been invented then this is real to real isn't it so that sort of stuff i thought was done really well and yeah was really really believable in terms of just the comfort that they had using ancient technology they must have had an away day for it so faye that was also one of the scenes i thought was really strong when she was operating the switchboard and she was moving those pins in and out and then you heard from this character and then she switched and you heard from another character and you were kind of piecing together the story in your mind from these little snippets of phone calls really loved that yeah absolutely one thing i liked is the fact that when they were in their in their wonderful conversation where they're just sort of wandering down that darkened street and discussing um, sort of advancements in modern mechanics that you know she she mentions three ideas one of which is basically would be a precursor to automated cars another one is like traveling by pneumatic tubes and the third one's essentially a mobile phone of those things only one of them's actually happened in really the way she was talking about it and that's the only one that ever it doesn't believe is going to happen he's i think he said something like tiny tv telephones that's cuckoo yeah <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> although i thought that the tubes thing i thought well that could be the shinkansen as well that could be the bullet train from japan even though i don't think it travels at the same 
speed that she was talking about. But yeah, the one that we all have is the one that he says, no, that's not going to happen. <laughs> have either of you seen Upload, the new series on Amazon? Because as soon as she started talking about self-driving cars that can kind of drive on a signal and then be manually overridden, that's exactly what happens in an upload and yeah so if you haven't seen that it's kind of her vision of the future that she talks about on that street come to life so yeah oh, wow. give it a go oh. give it a go one other thing before we get into spoilers sorry is um so there's a couple of films that this reminded me of one of them is pontypool uh. which was made in 2008 i think and is kind of a horror film set in a radio station in which something is driving people mad this would be quite a good double bill with that movie. Uh, so Pontypool is a really good one. And there's another one called The Similars, which is from 2015, directed by a Mexican director called Isaac Esben. It's very, very influenced by The Twilight Zone as well. So these people are in a bus station and there's this storm going, this raging outside, which means that the bus is going to be late arriving. And they start to realise that something weird is happening. That, I think, is on Netflix. That's called The Similars and is also, again, just great and well worth a look cool for the spoiler section intro now i think we should use the standard musical sting that they use at the end of every act break in the twilight zone if you can find it i will do but should we also use the sound that they are hearing in the film i just assumed you were going to play that underneath the whole episode i just assumed you were going to layer that in (laughs) (laughs) well i am now yeah so when you hear some weird music and some weird sounds that means that we are about to enter the spoiler zone so don't listen until you've watched the film Alrighty. twilight zone has been brought to you by push button lilt the foam home permanent for neat and easy curler permanents and neat and easy roller permanents too lilt Man, is this an emergency? Cool. Yeah, Tess, so I'm going to shift, and I might even leave this bit in as well, what you talked about into this area. I questioned the Billy character and wanted more from that storyline. And they mentioned that, so this is one of the parts where I gasped. I mean, stop me if you if you think I'm going to say a spoiler, but that everyone that was on the detail was either black or Mexican and that he wasn't going to be believed because he was black and that he was sick now because of what he had been through. And then they just kind of left Billy and then the character that got to have a moment, a bigger moment, and we saw her on screen was the elderly lady who had lost her child and then Everett ends up apologizing to her and saying, I'm sorry for what you've been through. And I, I was just sad that that hadn't happened with the Billy character. I felt like he, you know, the film should have gone to his house and we should have seen him and heard his experience and, and he should have got the apology. And I was kind of disappointed that essentially what kind of could have been a story more about Billy, they then went the other way. That they, in, in kind of touching upon it and then not exploring it, they end up kind of marginalising the character. Yeah, exactly. I think that's really important, actually, in terms of the way that this works in the racial discrimination and also society's discrimination. And the reason why I didn't have a problem with the Billy character not coming back into it. So he's a soldier that was working on this detail that you kind of imagine is that they were recovering a UFO or something and it made everyone ill who was working on it. 
the reason that I didn't have a problem with him not coming back into it was because then when you go to the Mabel character, and so Billy is played by Bruce Davis and Mabel is played by Gail Cronower, she talks about being a single mother. And it just seemed to be this thing where it was targeting people who would have difficulty being believed if they tried to say what had gone on. And you got the impression that both of these characters had then spent a long part of their lives trying to get people to listen to what happened. And they were ignored because of society's views of them. And I thought that was actually really quite smartly well done. Yeah, I did think uh, it talks about the, the the sort of the malevolence of this, whatever this uh, alien force is, and the impact that it's had, kind of on guiding world history. I think I think the quote is used is sway people to do things in certain ways, and the idea that there's this giant force above us manipulating the whole world, and it's quite a contained film. And, you know, obviously focuses on these two characters, but does kind of have a, the, the, this grand thematic scope behind it, as a lot of Twilight Zone stories do. Mm, yeah, indeed, definitely. I felt like that's, for me, is why the ending felt a bit empty and I wanted more, because I felt like they touched on some things. And I know it was a simple story that maybe wasn't designed to do more than what it did. But when she started saying that the aliens are responsible, basically saying that aliens are responsible for the flaws in people, so people constantly trying to lose weight, I don't know, vanity, I guess, or overeating, you know, gluttony or, or doing stuff that is out of their control, doing bad stuff. I just, I don't know why I didn't find that like a very exciting thought. And I thought that was a bit lame. And the film kind of lost me at that point. And then because they have this big revelation that it was only black and Mexican workers on the detail, and that was indicates a cover up. So there were all these bits that were could have been interesting and then and then aliens controlling your mind then they went that route and then the end okay they just got can i say it now yeah. <laughs> they got abducted by the ship it just it just left me feeling a bit lacking I was a bit disappointed that we saw the ship. I mean, I think it's a great work of design. It's, you know, initially I liked how they kind of implied it by showing that the gap in the trees that this, this craft had clearly passed through and it builds up until you essentially see this full on close encounters, third kind reveal. I thought that was really powerful for what it was, but looking back, I'm kind of wondering if it would have been more interesting if they played with the ambiguity. And I think that would have made her speech about the grand speech about all these things controlling our lives more interesting because it would have been like essentially it would have been projection it would have been saying well here's a horrible thing that happened to me and my child and the only way that i can explain it is through aliens and then obviously billy's story comes through the lens of well the story is not really about the aliens it's about systematic abuse and discrimination racism taking place on earth and the idea that all of these terrible things don't actually have a cause beyond us and that like the mystery of this noise it's just very human to go out there and want to search for something more and the idea that all of this is essentially a projection i think that's such a great reading of it because as i was watching it i found billy's story so compelling and um i can't think of her name but the elderly lady's story and how there was this feeling that they weren't believed and because aliens they say, like to target small towns, it made me think that a lot of the stories you probably hear about UFO sightings might come from small towns. And obviously, a lot of people aren't believed. And that was an interesting angle to say, these are people's experiences. And like today, most of the time, people think it's just their projections, or they see what they want to see or attributing stuff falsely. And if you were left at the end thinking, 
I'm not actually sure. Like you say, even if they didn't show it, but you kind of knew it was probably aliens. I think that that bit of doubt could have made it stronger and and wouldn't have made the ending just feel so like, oh, there was an alien ship. They got abducted. Done. Yeah, I think that. I think that the ambiguity would have been better if you had just seen lights or something. It's interesting that the director made the decision to show it because it's like, well, it then just means it's this one thing. On that point, though, it's like, well, it also suggests that these are malevolent. But it seems as if they've wanted them to be a family unit at the end. So they get that baby as well. Uh, so they get the friend's baby to look after it because they think it's going to be abducted. But then there's this whole thing about we're being controlled, which I actually thought was really good in terms of she kept running when they've got a car and she kept having to be told to get into the car. I think that she's not making this choice herself. She's being controlled. So they're a family unit at the end. But if this is malevolent, why do they want a family unit? Why does it have to be the man, the woman and a baby? There's a touch of ambiguity there, but it would have been, I think, a lot stronger if we hadn't had the big effects moment. Uh, just quickly, um, talking about the reveal at the end, I felt like it was good. What was good is that it built up the anticipation and the anticipation of the film, I think, was good and kept you going. But there were points where everyone was saying there was, there's something in the sky and when they were clearly outside in quite a deserted area where I just thought, why wouldn't they look up at the sky and try and look for this thing that people are telling them? And for that for me, felt a bit contrived, like they were trying to build up the, the reveal at the end. But for me, if, if they're investigating this thing and they're trying to understand what's going on, the fact that they never just for a long period of time decided to look up to try spot this thing was a bit weird. For me, I was really interested by the fact that they never really paid off the Twilight Zone style framing, because obviously they open it with the narration. You're about to enter a dimension beyond sight and sound, a dimension of mind. It lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his hopes. You're about to enter the Twilight Zone. But they never had the Twilight Zone style moral at the end because all the Twilight Zone TV episodes have Rod Serling as like the omnipresent narrator figure who pops up occasionally to provide narration and try and sell you cigarettes. Um, but every episode ends with kind of a moral. And this doesn't end with a moral. And I'm kind of wondering if that's part of the point. And I'm wondering if, that, if the ending would have worked even better in concert with that if then the ambiguity and then no moral because in essentially in the Twilight Zone, no matter how thing, weird things get, you've always got Rod Serling's always going to come back and is always going to explain and kind of ultimately Twilight Zone exists in a moral universe, whereas this doesn't. When you talk about a moral universe in the Twilight Zone, Rob, uh, what do you mean by that? Or how is that Essentially, at the, explained at the end or? of the Twilight Zone, every single episode ends with like a, and here was the point. Here's what we've learned from that story. Or like what you should take away. And, oh, and that ultimately this episode had the same kind of setup as a Twilight Zone, but it didn't have the same payoff. Yes, I think that's why I left it feeling a bit empty because I didn't, I still don't know what to take away from the film at the end, apart from obviously enjoying the, the look and feel and brilliant sound of it. Yeah, I think, I think ultimately I just think it was, an, I thought it was an incredibly well-made mood piece. And he kind of reminded me of Donnie Darko, which means it was very interesting to go back to because I loved Donnie Darko on the first viewing and then went back and thought, hmm. And then when you hear the director of Donnie Darko, Richard Kelly, talk about what he thinks it's about, it's just not interesting at all. But this one, I think there's a lot going on in there that I think will reward a second viewing. So I'm looking forward to going back and yeah, seeing if there are any clues that I've missed. It's also one of those things, actually, before we get on, because we need to wrap it up soon because you guys need to go. But um, the scene when the Mabel character is talking about 
being a single mum and then her kid gets abducted and it just holds on a shot of her in profile for quite a few minutes. And then when she says, but can you take me with you? And Everett says, take you where? And it then cuts to a close-up of her and she says, when you go into the ship. And I thought, this is really great filmmaking. This understands just the simple power of reframing to change meaning and things like that. And that's why I think that this guy's next films, um, I'll definitely be checking it out. I wish they had taken her with them. Mm, I was thinking that. uh, There were so many opportunities in the story for them to make it more interesting. And they, they just went the more basic route. Like I would have liked to have seen what would happen if, if they decided to take her? I guess it's that thing in, in acting where you, or improv where you're not supposed to say no because you close down the story. And I felt like at many points, the script just kind of closed down the story. I wondered, though, if that wasn't a case of the $700,000 budget saying no. And okay. for her <laughs> saying, right, so you want this person for a night shoot as well? Mm, it's going to add quite a bit more onto your budget. <laughs> It'll be interesting to see just how much of it was a prosaic money reason for him having to uh, to keep it quite tight in how many people he had in a shot or had in a scene sorry yeah we can we can afford that we can afford the kids the kids the kids you know the uh <laughs> or, or the young the young people because because our premium our health premiums on them the insurance is quite low i'm sorry anybody over 60 has to stay in the house yes and gail crowdow i think is 73 so uh, it's like all set bound for her with a doctor on standby <laughs> so because we're going to have to wrap up in a few minutes. Rob, do you want to give your thoughts on Artemis Fowl, which also dropped on streaming this week? Yeah, yeah, on Disney Plus. It went straight to Disney Plus and completely skipped um, any sort of theatrical release, as, as you know, as of course, many films have done. However, many films don't have a, and I'm checking how big the budget was, many films don't tend to have a $125 million budget. Um, <laughs> essentially, so you can tell it, you can tell that they don't have the greatest amount of faith in it it's and it's a 95 minute film whereas you know the lady in the tramp was two hours so you know a lot's been cut out of it i loved it the ewan cole the, uh, the, the owen cole for books as a kid um and essentially about this young rich irish boy who decides to he's, he's a genius and he basically kidnaps a fairy uh in uh, you know fairies are real sorry i should probably set that up in the premise <laughs> um but there's no character development in this essentially in the book he's a villain he's he's the hero of the book but he is an antagonist in this they've just essentially defanged him and it's all very cuddly and all very immediately there colin farrell plays his dad who isn't in the first book he uh a spoiler for the 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 artemis file book series that's been out about two decades he is in the second one they've essentially i think in reshoots took a bunch of the second book in order to bolster it because the first book it's quite dark in places and it's not it's not very long so they've essentially tried to pad out the plot here and and at the same time, strip back and all the mythology. There's a lot of. It feels like a long movie at 95 minutes because nothing really happens in it. There's the villain character who is essentially the who's meant to be organizing everything. Has about three scenes and is essentially about as dynamic as Emperor Palpatine appearing in those holograms. Hmm. Um, you've got Judy Dench playing uh, Commander Root, who's the head of Lep Recon, Lep Recon. Oh God! And it's got um, oh, uh, it's got um, uh, the guy who voiced Olaf. What is his name? Josh Gad. Josh Gad as a giant dwarf, and all this stuff's in the books. And in the books, it works because Owen Colfer is a good writer, and he can make it smart and funny. You stick it up on the screen, it just looks incredibly generic. 
it's an incredibly disappointing film as somebody who loved the books as a kid. Um, Variety described it as, and I think this is pretty much on point, the origin story for a character we'll never hear from again. <laughs> and it's, yeah, from Kenneth Branagh, so um, who yeah. typically can do good with that sort of thing. Thor got the tone right. Cinderella got the tone right. I mean- I mean, I can. Can I give a? No, I can't. I, do you know what? It's not, this film by itself is not worth a spoiler section, so I won't say anything that could be spoilery. Other than there are better things. The better ways to spend roughly ninety-five minutes of your time, including watching *Vast of Night*. So, yes, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, okay. So, anything that we want to say about *Vast of Night* before we wrap up? For me, I just I'm looking forward to seeing what the director does next. I'm looking forward to seeing what Andrew Patterson, uh, how Andrew Patterson follows this up. He'll probably go and make something for Disney. <laughs> Yes, I bet he will. Well, for me, I'm just glad that Tess didn't have a completely horrible time with it because I kind of forced her to watch it when I saw that it had dropped on Amazon Prime. No, not at all. I think I I worry that I've sounded too negative about the film in my comments, but definitely to say that it's it's worth a watch and there were so many things to really love. I think it was so well made and so resourceful in how it used colour and the characters felt so real and the the dialogue was was really great so using what they had and the sound i thought was just yeah really brilliant i know i've i've said that already but loads and loads to really like even though i found it um tough at times it was yeah a really really good watch and as you say uh, i'm sure he'll go on to do other very interesting things it did make me feel like i should probably watch an episode of the twilight zone also oh, i guess oh, not my usual kind of film um i think it's probably good that you guys are are fans i like sci-fi but i can't say i'm a fan at all of of alien movies which is why i've watched so few even that being said i enjoyed it so i i feel like that's a, a good tick for the film oh yeah you should definitely watch an episode of the original twilight zone they're only about 20 minutes just watch just start with the first one it's an, it's an anthology series so I, i'd start with the first one instead of maybe jumping straight to one of the famous classics that the twists have all been spoiled for um don't watch the later season the, the very late seasons because they all go to about 45 minutes and can't sustain it because i think you can sustain a 90 minute mood piece based on the twilight zone i don't think you can sustain a 45 minute ep- long twilight zone episode narration and all yeah i've heard the new remake is it is it with jordan peele or have i got that wrong is, is i haven't terrible. actually watched any of the new remake oh, yeah i i heard mixed things and i i watched them all they're they're good i mean they're not great but they are good there was there wasn't one that i thought oh no that was really awful I mean, some of them are stronger than others, but on the whole, I had a pretty good time watching it. It's maybe a case of hardcore Twilight Zone fans being very harsh with the remake. I find things, especially sci-fi, people get so passionate about, so are are very harsh in reviewing remakes. Yes, that was a very, very nice Mm. use of the word passionate there. Um, They get dicks about it. (laughs) 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 Which is why I didn't want to review... um, yeah, I'm always kind of aware of, of wanting to review anything where I'm going to be overly negative in case I have uh, eggs thrown at my door by hardcore fans. We're going to get you on for Blue Velvet and next year I think is the 35th anniversary, so that's perfect. <laughs> Plus it is good to have another point of view. I realised last episode on Whiplash, I was so excited that we'd got Tess on that I completely forgot to give a spoiler warning and also forgot to do the wrap up in terms of all the social media plugs. So shall we end with those? 
Um, yeah, oh, you can find me uh, if you if you'd like. Uh, uh, follow me on Twitter at Robert M Wallace, or find my writing. And I've actually done a piece recently on www.ofallthefilmsites.com. And what's the piece that you've done on that? Uh, it's a review of Days of the ba- of da- uh, Days of Bagnold Summer, the su- new Simon Bird. Uh, it's a lovely little piece, and yeah, if, if anybody fancies a review of it, check it out. I've read that, and it's and it has made me want to watch the film. Tess, are you on Twitter anywhere? I am, but I'm a passive user of social media. I read what everybody else writes and, and don't really do anything myself, so um, it's not worth me mentioning any of my handles or, yeah. That sounds conspiratorial, like you are. <laughs> I know you know where the UFO sites are. <laughs> Well, if you want to find me, go to Rob underscore A underscore Daniel uh, on Twitter. Um, Electric-shadows.com is my website. If you want to rate and review the podcast, then please do that wherever you listen to podcasts and uh, because it helps us and it will be good to get your feedback. Rob, do you want to outro us? Well, um, thank you. Uh, we hope you've enjoyed our podcast on The Vast of Night. And I wish I could provide more sort of DJ patter in the style of the film, but I'll just say again, thank you very much for listening. And thank you for listening. You're meant to, you to jump in now, Rob. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Cheers for listening. Tess, thanks for coming back on and being ace as you were on Whiplash. Thank you for having me. And I look forward to the next time. Um, just being bold and inviting myself back. It's all good. Till then, watch the skies. <laughs> Twilight Zone was brought to you tonight by... Kleenex tissues. The only tissue that gives you so much. The soft, strong tissue with the Kleenex touch.